Our passage for this morning is Philippians 4, verses 14 through 23. So if you would please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Once again, that's the book of Philippians chapter 4. D.L. Moody once said, a good example is better than a good precept. A good example is better than a good precept. There's a lot of truth in that statement, isn't there? You stop and think about it, and it's why we love illustrations in our sermons. It's why we seem irresistibly drawn to the narrative portions of the Scripture. It would even seem it's why Jesus asked the disciples to follow Him and to spend time with Him, and why He spent His earthly ministry developing disciples instead of writing a book. In the words of an ancient Chinese proverb, I hear and I forget, I see and I remember, I do and I understand. It isn't enough just to be told what to do or to be told why some concept is important. If you can be shown why it's important by example and how to do it, again, by example, and even more than this, if you can even be included in the concept, if you can perform it in front of your teacher while they give you feedback and critique, you will learn much, much more than if somebody simply tells you what to do and why. This is the method of instruction that Jesus adopted. He told his disciples, listen to what I say, now watch me do it, and now you give it a try. It's an incredibly effective form of education. D.L. Moody was exactly right. A good example is better than a good precept. I don't know if you have any role models in your life, any good examples. I have a few. My mentor, Smedley, for example, whom several of you met a few weeks back. There are often times in ministry where I come upon a particularly challenging situation or when I have to make an unusually difficult decision, and one of the first questions I'll ask myself when that happens is, what would Smed do in this situation? And I think back to his example. I don't really think of anything specific he told me, instead I think of his example. And I try to anticipate what he would do if he were in my shoes. It may sound sort of cliche or even a bit silly, but uh, George Washington is another. There are just so many Christian virtues that seem to come together in his life. Servant leadership, fortitude, courage, integrity, humility, grace. I can't say if the man was a Christian or not, but he certainly acted in a way that you might expect from a Christian leader. So I find his example not only inspiring, motivating, but instructive as well. When I think of leadership... I don't say leaders have these five or eight qualities. I think leaders look like George Washington, and then I aim for that. However, there's one set of role models that have impacted my life perhaps more than any other, and that's Clifford and Dorothy Cooper. You've probably never heard of Clifford and Dorothy Cooper, but if you were to walk into my office you would see their pictures up on my bookshelf right in front of my seminary diploma and my certification of ordination. That's because 
Clifford and Dorothy Cooper were my grandparents. And I can think of few people that I admire more, few people that I would like to emulate more than them. And that might sound strange. After all, they didn't do anything historically significant as George Washington did. Neither were they engaged in the work of pastoral ministry, as my friend Smedley is. And Clifford was a town barber. He cut hair for something like 40, 45 years in Mansfield, Missouri. My grandma served as the county clerk for a number of years, which is kind of neat. I mean, to think that she had to run for office every few years and she won. But really, I mean, come on, it's Mansfield, not Manhattan, right? Uh, it's not exactly a prestigious political position. I imagine she often even ran unopposed. So what is it that I admired about them? Well, there were several things actually, but perhaps most of all, it was their humility and contentment. You see, Grandma and Grandpa didn't have a whole lot. Just a modest house in a small, rural Missouri town. They weren't going hungry by any means, but they certainly weren't rich either. They never went on any grand adventures. They grew up in Mansfield, got married, and settled down in Mansfield. Apart from my grandpa's couple of years in the Navy and our family's annual vacation in Colorado, they never really went anywhere. All in all, you might, you, you might say that they were rather plain and unremarkable people. And yet I'll tell you, they were happy. Like genuinely, sincerely happy. I never once heard them complain about their life. I never got the sense that they were disappointed with their lives or that they secretly desired to have more than what they had. They never acted like they got the short end of the stick growing up in rural Missouri during the height of the Depression. Instead, they seemed sincerely grateful for everything they had. They were incredibly content. I tell you, just by their example, they challenged my notion of success. I grew up with ambition, with this desire to do and see great things, but I had seen a lot of people who had done and seen those things who didn't seem to have a fraction of the joy and sweetness my grandparents had. It was enough to get me to question what really mattered in life, what a life well lived actually looks like. And I can say that by the time they passed away, I was convinced. I wanted to be like them. I wanted to live like them. I wanted to have what they had because what they had seemed so much better than what the world was telling me to look for. This morning marks the end of our time in the book of Philippians. And during the course of this study, we've been looking to the Apostle Paul as our example, as our role model. The Apostle Paul is perhaps the greatest evangelist who ever lived after the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this letter, perhaps more than any other, he explains the kind of thinking that compelled him to travel the world for the sake of the gospel and to even suffer for its sake. The letter is addressed, of course, to the Philippians. And in the course of our study, we've learned that they are suffering a kind of persecution not unlike Paul's. Paul, remember, is sitting under house arrest in Rome. He's about to stand trial 
before none other than Caesar himself, at which point his fate will be decided and he will either be released to continue his evangelistic work or he'll be put to death for the sake of the gospel. The Philippians have sent Paul a financial contribution to support him in his imprisonment. And upon receiving the news of their suffering, Paul takes a moment not only to update them about his status and thank them for their gift, but to instruct them as well in how to face this trial in the same way that he does. In fact, after explaining his attitude towards suffering, he even tells them, chapter 3, verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. He says, you can learn it from me or you can learn it from God himself, but either way you're going to have to learn this is how the mature Christian approaches suffering. This is mature thinking. So again, Paul has been our divinely inspired role model. He hasn't just been telling us how to suffer for Christ. He's been showing us, as he himself relates to the Philippians, how he thinks of suffering for the gospel. And what we learned last week is that contentment is a critical component in this process. Contentment doesn't seem like a characteristic that we would normally associate with strength. When we think of people who are strong, we think of attributes like courage and determination and ambition, even physical strength. In short, we think of people who bend the world to their desires through sheer willpower. Being happy with whatever you've been dealt sounds soft. It seems like weakness. And yet we saw that contentment is what enables a person to adapt to their circumstances without changing course. There's a resiliency in contentment that's underrated that allows a person to get knocked down and get back up and keep fighting. Or, for that matter, that allows them to stay on their, on their, their attack and, and keep fighting even when it seems like they're winning the fight. It keeps them from quitting prematurely. In short, it makes a person consistent in their conduct. While everyone else is swinging back and forth in the circumstances of the, of the moment, they don't budge because they're being driven by an inner joy that's not dependent on the fortune of the moment. When I think back on my grandparents, that's one of the things that stuck out about them. They didn't change. They weren't constantly jumping from one thing to another in some sort of vain search for happiness because they were already happy. Now again, the world might see that as boring to stay the same. But as Christians, that's actually not a bad trait. I mean, we need to be changing with respect to our holiness, right? We need to be growing in our love, growing in our sanctification, because we're certainly not yet what we ought to be. But just like what we saw in Sunday school this morning, we worship an eternal and unchanging God. So if we're thinking rightly, there's a sense in which we won't change. Our hope is going to remain fixed on the same object who himself does not change. Meaning there should be consistency in our behavior. So this isn't a bad thing to stay the same. And not only that, but keep in mind it's born out of happiness, joy, satisfaction. The reason why the content person doesn't change is because they don't feel the need to change. Again, they're happy where they are. That's not a bad thing. So the world can think what it wants, but this is actually a, an incredibly good characteristic. And this is what makes contentment such a 
valuable characteristic when it comes to proclaiming the gospel. I think what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, as he sits in prison again, only this time he anticipates he's about to die. And Paul tells Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and of his appearing in his kingdom, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience in teaching. This is what we need to be ready to do if we're going to be faithful in our mission. We can't be like Mr. Byans from Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, who's all for religion when he walks in his golden slippers in the sunshine and with applause, but then shrinks back from the same when religion is in rags and contempt. No, we must be willing, like the Christian of that same story, to proclaim Christ both in season and out of season, not only when our message is popular and well-received, but when it is unpopular and rejected as well. And what gives the Christian this strength? Again, Paul showed us, by example, it was his contentment. He learned to be happy in each and every circumstance. He gets this gift from the Philippians, and he tells them, thank you for your gift. It's made me incredibly happy before explaining, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. So this is where Paul's resiliency is coming from. It's this character trait that enables him to be happy in every circumstance and, and so hold his course in the proclamation of Christ without changing. So the question is, where is this contentment coming from? We see where Paul's resiliency is coming from. It's coming from his contentment. But where is the contentment coming from? And there are actually a few different ways we could answer that question. Last week I noted that Paul says, verse 13, that, quote, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And again, when Paul says that, he's not saying that he can literally do anything. That's how people sometimes use this verse as a kind of pep talk. They say to themselves, yes, I can get that next promotion. I can lose that 40 pounds uh, I've been aiming for. After all, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And that cheapens this verse. Paul's not saying he can literally do anything through the strength that Christ supplies, though, of course, I suppose he could say that. That would be true. His point, though, is that he's learned this secret of contentment through the strength that Christ supplies. He's learned how to abound and how to be brought low all through the strength that Christ supplies. In short, he's learned how to face both distraction and discouragement and not lose sight of his objectives. How does that work? I said last week there's both a passive and an active element involved in this. Passively, Jesus literally strengthens Paul to find joy in things that Paul couldn't otherwise find joy in apart from God's grace in his life. Actively, Christ does this work as Paul engages his mind and fixes his attention on certain gospel realities. Uh, the sovereignty of Christ, for instance, the fact that all circumstances are directed by Christ or the eternal fruit that's being produced by his ministry through Christ. The hope that Paul has found in Christ, the hope that is strengthened by the fact that as Paul is conformed into Christ's image through suffering, that he'll also participate with Christ in his resurrection from the dead. These are all concepts that we've seen Paul think on 
throughout this epistle in which we can see allow him to receive both his plenty and hunger, abundance and need with contentment. And really, if we are splitting hairs, I think Paul's referring more to the latter of these two concepts than he is the former. When he's saying, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, I think he's referring primarily to this strengthening that occurs as Paul actively fixes his mind on these gospel realities. And I say that because Paul notes that he, quote, learned in whatever situation he's in to be content, that he learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So I don't think this is a, content, a contentment that Paul couldn't explain. Instead, if you were to talk to him, he would say, I'm content for these reasons. Because again, he learned it. Now again, the reason why Paul is content in these circumstances is because of the supernatural work that Christ performs as he thinks on these things. But the point is that Paul was still actively engaging his mind in the process of being content. It wasn't just something that happened to him, he worked at it. So this active engagement to be content, as Paul thought on the realities of the gospel, this passive transformation that comes from Christ through the Spirit, these are two ways that we could explain Paul's contentment. But as we close out this letter this morning, I want to return to a theme that I've tried to hammer home repeatedly throughout this epistle. And that's to say that the reason why Paul thought the way he did is because he lived by a completely different set of priorities, which were established by an entirely different reality. Essentially, Paul believed in the gospel. Like it wasn't just a hope for him, at least not in the way that you and I tend to think about the idea of hope. Like he didn't hope in Jesus Christ in the sense that he was sort of crossing his fingers and hoping that maybe, just maybe, this message is true. No, it was real for Paul. Paul set his hope in Christ in that he fully expected that Christ was coming back and that he would transform Paul's lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. And Paul lived in light of that reality. I think that's hard for many of us. It's like the longer you live for Christ, the more accustomed you tend to become to Christ's absence. And the more you begin to live as if how things are now is the way that they will always be. It's very easy to get lulled to sleep and begin living as if you aren't going to die one day and pass on into eternity. Or that Christ isn't coming back. It's very easy to forget what the Bible says about who we are and how that's supposed to shape the way we live. Not Paul. It would seem that for Paul, heaven was real and imminent in his thinking. It was as real and near to Paul as this podium is here in front of me. It was tangible. And that changed in, in what mattered to Paul. It transformed his priorities. You see it evident here this morning in the things that Paul is thankful for. I don't know if you remember, but way back at the beginning of this letter, we took a look at Paul's prayers. 
And at the time, I said that you can tell a lot about a person's spiritual health by the things they pray for. After all, when we pray, we come to a being who not only knows all things, but who can also do all things, and we submit our requests to him. Meaning, not only are we unable to lie to this being, but we're coming with a theoretical blank check. He can literally do anything. This means that when a person comes to God in prayer, they're often communicating their most sincere and heartfelt desires. Basically, if you want to know what a person wants, what it is they truly desire, or to put it another way, what they think is important, then just take a look at their prayer life. Well, it's the same way with what a person is thankful for. You could give me tickets to a Taylor Swift concert, and I wouldn't be thankful for them, because I don't care much for Taylor Swift. I mean, honestly, I'd probably just give them away. Doesn't sound like a very fun evening to me. Now make that Packers-Bears tickets in Lambeau Field, and it's a different story. Because I like the Green Bay Packers. I'd arrange a hotel stay, airfare, to take advantage of those tickets because the Green Bay Packers mean something to me. You see how this works? We're all thankful for the things we think important. So if you want to understand what a person values, what they think important, then just look at what they're thankful for. And what we see in Paul here this morning through the things that he's thankful for is a mind that's been completely transformed by the gospel. Last week I said that as Paul comes to the close of this letter, he's caught in this dilemma between trying to express gratitude for the Philippians' gift without at the same time making the Philippians feel either guilty for not sending him something sooner or obligated to send him something more. Well, in the course of this discussion, I explained that one of the ways Paul addresses this dilemma is to tell the Philippians, your gift did comfort me, but it wasn't because of the financial support it provided. Basically, he tells them it did matter without making them think at the same time that he was dependent on it. That would make a church like the Philippians feel very guilty for not making a better effort to help him sooner. And Paul doesn't want them to feel that way. He wants to encourage these brothers. And so he tells them, your gift did comfort me, but not because of the financial support it provided. Because I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I'm in. And this raises an interesting question. If Paul isn't thankful for the financial support, then what is he thankful for? Listen, the answer to that question is critical, not only because it helps us understand the source of Paul's contentment, but because it also gives us insight into Paul's priorities, insight into what mattered to Paul. In short, it shows us that the reason why Paul could be content in any and every circumstance is because Paul possesses a mind that has been radically transformed by the priorities of the gospel. And friends, I need you to know if you don't share these same priorities, I don't think you'll be able to find this same kind of contentment. In other words, do you want to have the kind of contentment that Paul talks about here? To be happy in each and every circumstance. Do you want to persevere in your faith and proclaim Christ in season and out of season? 
If so, then you need to think like Paul. You have to adopt the same priorities that he expresses here as he tells the Philippians why he's thankful for their gift. What are those priorities? I think we can summarize them in two points. And just so you know, these points are hard to separate from each other. They're intertwined conceptually, so I'm not going to really move from one point to another as we move along here today. Instead, we're going to go back and forth between these two because they each sort of explain the other. So if you want to write down these two priorities, you need to do it now because I'm not going to list them again. These priorities are, number one, people, and number two, the glory of God. Paul was motivated by the spiritual development that he saw occurring in the people he ministered to. And he was motivated by the glory of God. These are the things that matter to Paul. And so if you want to find the contentment and the resiliency that Paul possessed, then you must learn how to adopt these same priorities in your own thinking. You need to learn to be motivated by the eternal fruit that's born out as other people learn to give praise and glory to God. If you can learn to be, how to be happy with that, then you can learn to be content in any and every circumstance, and you, and, and you will persevere in your proclamation of the gospel. Let's go ahead and read the passage together in its context, starting in verse 10. And today we're going to run all the way down to the end of this letter in verse 23. Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, you, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me, sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Once again, our passage for this morning is verses 14 through 23. And as Paul moves into this section, he's just told the Philippians that he's grateful for the gift they sent him, but not because of the physical relief it brought him, since he's learned how to be content. He's learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And this begs the question, so then what is Paul thankful for? He says he rejoiced in the Lord that when he received this gift. Well, if it's not because of the relief it provided him financially, then what is he rejoicing over? 
And the answer is that he rejoiced in the fact of what this gift demonstrated about the Philippians. It demonstrated that the Philippians were persevering in their faith and that they would even be rewarded for their faithfulness to Christ. We see this in verses 14 through 17. Paul says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. He says, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Last week I said that pastors, true pastors, genuine pastors, don't go into the ministry for profit. They do it because they want to help the sheep. Meaning they don't want to be enriched at the expense of the sheep, rather they want it to be the other way around. They hope to enrich the sheep at their own expense. Perhaps no one personified this desire more than the Apostle Paul, who voluntarily chose to support his ministry by the work of his own hands so he could offer the gospel free of charge, so to speak, to those he ministered to. Well, right here we see this pastoral concern come out of Paul as he thanks the Philippians for their gift. Paul didn't go into the ministry for the money, right? <laughs> he did it for the spiritual benefit he hoped to impart to those he served. So what is it that's going to energize Paul to keep going when he's suffering for the gospel? It isn't the benefit that he receives for the suffering. It's the benefit his people receive for his suffering. Again, that's what we see right here. He begins by noting that although he wasn't particularly strengthened by the financial gift he received, it was still kind of the Philippians to send him help. He acknowledges that this was a sincere expression of their love for Paul. And that leads Paul into why this gift encouraged him. He notes that from the beginning of the gospel, this church has been faithful to support him in his ministry. They've been unusually generous in supporting Paul's missionary endeavors. And then verse 17, Paul explains why this matters to him. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. The word for credit here is the word logos in the Greek. I would imagine that many of you recognize that word as the word for word as well. Like when John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The phrase in each of those instances is halagos, the word. Well, that word, word, can also be used in a technical sense to refer to a financial account or computation. It's the same way with this word for fruit, karpos. It means literally fruit, but when, but when used in a financial setting, it can actually be translated as profit. I actually like the way the New American Standard translates this verse best. best. It says, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. That's a very good rendering of this verse. It would seem that Paul is returning to the financial imagery that we saw back in chapter 3 when he said, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. It's sort of like how businesses will sometime, 
sometimes give up on some unprofitable aspect of their business and declare that to be a net loss in order to gain the tax benefits that our government grants in these types of scenarios. That's what Paul's doing. He's writing off his old way of life as a loss in order to gain the benefits that he's received in Christ. That same kind of thinking is going on here in chapter 4. Of course, there's always going to be a cost to proclaiming Christ. We saw this just a couple of weeks ago. The scripture tells us that everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, in order to endure that sort of suffering, you have to know it's for something. That there's a gain to be had in it. That it is greater to, gain, to get this gain than to lose the loss that suffered. And Jesus encourages this kind of thought all the time. He tells the disciples to store up treasures on earth rather than, or treasures in heaven rather than treasures on earth. He says that whoever saves his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake will find it. He asks, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Basically, he encourages his listeners to perform this kind of cost-benefit analysis in order to help encourage them to take the difficult steps that come with true discipleship and faith. Back in chapter 3, we saw that as Paul performed this cost-benefit analysis, it was the hope of the resurrection that propelled him forward. Here in chapter 4, it's the fruit or profit that's going to be credited to the Philippians' account. Throughout the scripture, there's this concept of reward that's associated with obedience. This is particularly true when a person chooses to suffer with the church voluntarily. Matthew 10, 40, and 42, uh, 40 through 42, for instance, Jesus concludes his instructions to the disciples where he prepares them to suffer while on mission for the gospel by saying, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. We see this same idea in Hebrews 10, 32-36, where the author of Hebrews encourages his readers to suffer with those who are being persecuted for their faith by writing. Again, Hebrews 10, 32-36, he says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. The scripture is very big on the idea of corporate union or corporate identity. That what happens to one member of the group happens to all. You see it in Adam, right? When the entire human race is plunged into judgment and sin 
on account of Adam's sin? You see it in places like Joshua 7 and 8 where the entire nation of Israel suffers on account of Achan's sin? It's even the very basis of our salvation. I mean, why do you and I expect to go to heaven? On what basis would we expect a holy God to permit sinners like us into his present? Well, presence. Well, it's on the basis of our union with Christ. When we believe our debts and Christ's riches are joined together under one account. And since Christ paid for our debts on the cross, we can have the expectation that we'll participate in the riches of his inheritance. It's the same way when a person chooses to support their brothers and sisters in Christ in the midst of their affliction. Just as Paul understood that he was partnering with Christ as he suffered persecution for his name, so also does the Christian partner with the persecuted when they render them assistance in the midst of their affliction. That's the point that Hebrews is driving at when it says that these Christians have become partners with those who were so treated and then urges them not to throw away their confidence, which has a great reward. It's because when they render this support, they're participating in the sufferings of the afflicted. That's significant. Because like I said just a couple of weeks ago, no one who does not in some way suffer for the faith will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's why the author of Hebrews urges them not to throw away their confidence, which has a great reward. It's because by rendering support to the afflicted, they participate in their affliction, which is in and of itself a sign of a person's salvation. Paul seems to have this concept in view when he writes verse 17. The reason why he's encouraged by this gift is because of the Philippians' joyful participation with Paul in his suffering. And it demonstrates that it's going to result in their eternal reward. Again, he wants to join Christ in his suffering because participation in the death of Christ means participation in his life as well. Well, if the Philippians join with Paul in that partnership, then they get a portion of that reward as well. And that's what brings joy, or Paul joy here. It's the fact that this gift demonstrates that the Philippians are going to share in Paul's reward. In fact, it's interesting. There's actually a linguistic connection in this verse that takes us back to the very beginning of this letter. Again, you see there in verse 17 how Paul says he seeks the fruit that increases to their credit. Well, back in chapter 1, Paul explains that he's been praying for the Philippians that they might be able to approve what is excellent and, quote, so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The word for fruit in those two verses is the same, even though their use is not. There, Paul is talking about the character that he hopes will become evident in the Philippians. Here, fruit refers to the reward they'll receive for their faithfulness. But conceptually, you can still see the connection between those two verses, can't you? Paul has been praying for this fruit that will give glory to God in the day of judgment. Here he's giving thanks for the reward, or literally the profit, that they'll receive as a consequence of this fruit. Now, I think that's a little bit odd though, isn't it? 
Isn't it a little bit strange to think that Paul is thankful for this? I mean, why would Paul get excited over their reward? Why would he be encouraged by the benefit they'll receive for their participation in his suffering? I mean, if you stop and think about it for a moment, that seems sort of like a bad deal. Paul pays the penalty, and the Philippians get the reward. What kind of exchange is that? Why is this something that Paul would get excited about? I think there are two answers to that question. For Paul, first, Paul would get excited about this because he himself has been so transformed by the gospel that he now participates in the love of Christ. You know what I mean by that, don't you? When I say love of Christ here, I'm not referring to the love that Paul has for Christ, his love of him, or even of the love that Christ has for Paul. I'm referring rather to the general quality of love that's practiced by Christ. Christ's love is a selfless love. We saw this as recently as chapter 2, when Paul actually urged the Philippians to, quote, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Before then explaining, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then, of course, he goes on to demonstrate this, how Christ put the needs of others before himself. I mean, what kind of exchange is it for Paul to suffer the penalty and for the Philippians to get the reward? Why, it's the, the same exchange we see at the cross. That's the way Christ loves. That's Christian love. And again, again, note, Paul tells the Philippians to have this attitude which is yours in Christ Jesus in chapter 2. Jesus produces this kind of love. Going back to the prayer of chapter 1 once again, this kind of love is the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So when we ask the question, why would Paul rejoice over the reward that the Philippians will receive through his suffering? The answer is, well, because Paul's a Christian. And by virtue of their union with Christ, Christians love this way. They rejoice in the good that they can do for others even up and above the good they can receive themselves. It's like the scripture says, the one who is forgiven much loves much. Well, Paul has been forgiven much. And so he loves much. In short, his belief in the gospel produces this kind of love. That's perhaps the short answer as to why Paul would be encouraged by this gift. He's encouraged simply because he loves the Philippians and their participation in his suffering is going to result in their blessing and reward. But there's another element to this as well. And that's Paul's passion for the glory of God. Look at verse 18. Paul says, I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and a pleasing to God. Now hopefully you can sense the double meaning of what Paul is saying here when he says that he's received full payment, that he's well supplied. 
That's referring to money, yes. He's trying to tell the Philippians, you've done enough. Yes, you've helped me far and above what was needed. Please don't feel the obligation to send me any more. Basically, he's trying to relieve them from the burden they might feel to continue to send him additional support in light of his gratitude over the first gift. But even more than this, he's referring to the spiritual nourishment that this gift has supplied Paul. Their participation in his suffering and the reward they'll receive on account of it, this has encouraged Paul in ways that is more than sufficient to help him finish out his imprisonment. What Paul adds here is that these gifts are a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Note this, Paul switches the imagery. He goes from the marketplace to the temple, and he now frames their gift according to the worship it expresses to God. Again, this gift is evidence of the Philippians' faith. They're participating with Paul in his suffering because of their love for Paul through Jesus Christ. They love Christ. Paul participates with Christ in his suffering, and so the Philippians express their love for Christ by taking care of Paul. This makes this gift an expression of worship, which is why they'll be rewarded for it in the day of judgment. To quote Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, as he explains what he'll say to those who've helped his disciples in the great tribulation, he says, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Again, corporate identity, corporate union to one another through Jesus Christ. So what happens to one of us happens to all of us. And what we do for one another, we do unto Christ. As Paul switches into this imagery, it culminates in an expression of worship from Paul himself. He says, To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. What's evoking this praise from Paul? Again, I think there are a couple of answers to this question, but they're related to one another. On the one hand, he praises God because this offering to God actually comes from God. Again, back, back in chapter 1, this fruit of righteousness that Paul is praying for in verse 11, where does it come from? It comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. God is the source of the Philippians' faith and righteousness. And so as Paul sees this fragrant offering rising up to God in the form of this support, he traces it back to its source, and that's God himself. And he gives God praise and thanks for it. On the other hand, he praises God because of what he says in verse 19. Verse 19, Paul notes that, quote, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Paul is confident that God is going to respond to this offering from the Philippians by blessing the Philippians with what they need. Now that may not be riches, by the way. More than likely, it's the love and discernment that Paul's praying for back in chapter 1. It's the unity that he's been so concerned about throughout this letter. Either way, Paul is confident that, that God is going to do this because, again, God is the one who produced the gift in the first place. Basically, the gift proves that God has set his love on the Philippians, and that means that he's going to continue to bless the Philippians. To quote Philippians 1.6, Paul says, With respect, to the Philippians, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
So Paul is confident that God is going to take care of the Philippians because of the grace evident in them through this gift. And that fills Paul with joy. Because again, Paul loves the Philippians. And so he praises God because this gift magnifies the grace of God in the life of the Philippians. And I think this concept is an incredibly important one to understand if you're going to understand how thoroughly Paul has been transformed by the hope of the gospel and how this results in Paul's contentment in each and every circumstance. If you want to try to dig down to the bedrock of Paul's desires, what you'll find is that what Paul wants more than anything else, what he wants more than anything else, is to see the glory of God. That's a hope that's confirmed by the scriptures, by the way. Theologians call it the beatific vision, and it's the ultimate hope of every saint throughout the ages. You hear me say it often, what makes the gospel good news is not the fact that we won't be punished for our sins, but that we'll actually get to dwell with God. You take that element away, the hope of dwelling in the very presence of the source of every good and perfect gift, and the gospel isn't really good news. Or at least it's not the best news, it's just sort of okay news. Genesis 3, man is evicted from God's presence in the Garden of Eden. Revelation 21, God returns to dwell with man once again. That's the storyline of the scripture, ladies and gentlemen. That's the problem that God is resolving. Man's separation from God. And the hope of the gospel is that through Jesus Christ, that relationship can be restored and man can dwell in the presence of God once again. Reconciliation, not just pardon, but reconciliation. That is the hope of the gospel. And that's what Paul wants more than anything else. He wants to dwell in God's presence and see his glory. Again, chapter 3, why does he suffer? What sustains him in that suffering? It's the hope that through suffering he might know Christ and the power of his resurrection. He says he's counted everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He suffered the loss of all things in order that he might gain Christ. You hear that? Jesus is the ultimate prize. Not a mere deliverance from punishment, but the privilege of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's what makes this response from Paul so fascinating. Why is it that Paul rejoices over another person's gift? Why does he rejoice over someone else's sanctification? over someone else's assurance of faith. Friends, it's because that gift, that sanctification, that assurance magnifies the glory of God. And that's what Paul wants to see. He's captivated by the glory of God. And God's glory is magnified as more and more people come to salvation and stand firm in situations like this one. I think you see this illustrated very well in 2 Corinthians 4. 15. There Paul's explaining why he suffers so much in the course of his ministry and he tells the Corinthians, for it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Again Paul notes that he suffers not just for his benefit 
but for theirs, for the sake of the Corinthians. Now, this time he actually means something slightly different than what he means in Philippians about how this suffering benefits them. But the point is that he suffers because as he suffers, God's grace extends to more and more people, increasing thanksgiving to the glory of God. Basically, God is glorified through the praises of those who are redeemed by his grace. The thanksgiving in this verse, by the way, that doesn't seem to be directed only at God. It's directed at the Corinthians as well, who, chapter 1, verse 11, have prayed for Paul and sustained him in his ministry. These people who Paul is helping are thanking God for his grace at work in the lives of the Corinthians as they sustain Paul in his ministry through prayer. That's why Paul says all his suffering is, quote, for your sake. It's because they're participating with Paul in his suffering by supporting him through prayer. And again, Paul desires that reward for them, this thanksgiving that's being directed at the Corinthians through Paul for their participation in his work. Again, corporate union, corporate identity. Coming back to chapter 4, 2 Corinthians, Paul then continues, starting in verse 16, he says, So we do not lose heart. He says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things, as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul says that he's being driven by this expert expectation of glory. This glory that is being prepared by this light, momentary affliction. And what glory could he be talking about here? It's not his glory, is it? That would be completely out of character for Paul. No, in context, it's the glory of God from verse 15. Paul's suffering for the gospel is preparing this eternal weight of glory. And that's what keeps him going. How does suffering result in a witnessing of God's glory? He's already given the answer. Verse 15, again, 2 Corinthians 4. He says, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. As Paul suffers, God's grace extends to more and more people. And as his grace extends to more and more, pe more, and more people, his glory is made manifest. It's made visible through this grace. And who is it that gets to witness that glory as a result of this suffering? It's Paul and everyone else to whom Paul has ministered. It's almost as if Paul is witnessing this worship service in heaven. And on the one hand, he's looking at the throne of God and he's overcome with awe at the majesty of God as he looks upon his glory. And then when he looks out around him at this multitude that have been redeemed by God's grace, it pushes up to another level. And the more and more worshipers there are standing beside Paul, the greater his comprehension of God's grace and the greater his sense of awe and wonder at the marvelous grace of God. And so Paul preaches. Paul preaches because he wants to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. He's being driven by this passion to behold the glory of God. And every time Paul suffers, he performs this cost-benefit analysis and he determines that the joy he'll experience in eternity 
as God is magnified through the assembly of this great multitude, far outweighs any temporary suffering he may experience in the meantime. A momentary light affliction, he calls it, which is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. You hear that? The one is momentary, the other is eternal. The one is light, the other is weighty. Paul's done the math. And the suffering's worth it. It's worth it because it's only as Paul suffers for the gospel that gifts like this one from the Philippians, which demonstrate God's glory, happen. What this gift represents is that the Philippians' faith is real. It represents that they're going to be assembled with Paul in this great multitude, singing praises to God. The gift is itself a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And as Paul smells the aroma from this offering going up to God, he's strengthened because it means his suffering's worth it. Again, this is why Paul can rejoice over the gifts and rewards of others. It's because their reward increases his reward. Again, corporate union, corporate identity. That's been the central theme of this epistle, has it not? Paul is urging unity of the church as they suffer together. Can you see why? It's because this is how Paul thought. Again, his union with Christ completely revolutionized the way he thought about everything else, about the, the way he saw his relationships with other people. And if you want to have the contentment that Paul has, if you want to have the same resiliency for the sake of the gospel, then you have to learn to think like he thinks. Because all his joy, all his contentment, all his resiliency is rooted there and how the gospel transforms his thinking. Paul concludes this letter in verses 21 to 23, and I love the way he ends this. Because after expressing his gratitude for their gift on account of what it means about their salvation, he sends a little fragrant offering back their way. He sends a pleasing aroma that's meant to strengthen the Philippians in their suffering back at them. I don't know if you remember, but throughout our time in Philippians, I've explained that one of the things that apparently made it so hard for the Philippians to suffer for the sake of Christ was their Roman citizenship. It's not just that the Philippians were mostly Gentiles, it's that they were more than likely proud of the fact that they were Roman. And their relationship with Christ was coming into conflict with that identity as they suffered at the hands of the Roman authorities. It was confusing for them. They probably never meant to, to rebel against Rome. They loved Rome. Look at how Paul ends this letter. Do you remember back in chapter 1 when Paul said that his imprisonment was actually serving to advance the gospel and how it had become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that his imprisonment is for Christ? Well, look at how he ends this letter. Philippians 4, 21 through 23. He says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. 
The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Especially those of Caesar's household. Do you realize what those words would have meant to these Philippians? There are actually members of Caesar's household who have come to salvation through Paul's suffering. In other words, their suffering is worth it. Through their endurance, they're able to support Paul and participate in his ministry in Rome. And now there is this fragrant offering emanating up to God from Caesar's own household. I can only imagine what joy and encouragement this would have given the Philippians as they realized that their suffering too was not in vain. That others were benefiting from the pain that they experienced for the cross of Christ. Their suffering was not in vain. And neither is yours, Christian. If you're going to follow Paul's example and be faithful to proclaim Christ like he did, you're going to have to suffer just as he did. Again, it's simply unavoidable. The good news, however, is that as you suffer, God will be at work through your suffering to produce this eternal weight of glory. And he will strengthen you for the work by giving you evidence of this fruit even now. You just have to, to do the cost-benefit analysis and determine, is it worth it? If you want to know the answer to that question, you just need to look at Paul's example. He's traveled that path. He's suffered both the loss and experienced the gain. And I think you know by now what he would tell you if he was standing here in front of you today about whether or not it was worth it. You just have to decide whether or not you believe well, do you? Do you believe what Paul has been writing in this letter, what he's been showing us by example? I pray that you do. I pray that God would do such a wonderful work in our hearts that we would all together make sacrifices for the gospel. And that God would then multiply our sacrifice by extending his grace to more and more people to the praise and glory of God. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.